I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's Tuesday, 19th of November. I'm Andy Brassel. She's Jules Breach. And this is Jules and Andy on Football Ramble Daily. Coming up with England safely qualified for Euro 2020, we'll be talking about what the tournament in all its various venues will be like, both for fans and for media working on it. Talking of media working on football, we'll be going inside Women's Football Weekend with Jules, who was at a White Hart Lane or the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, as some people still call it, not me, for the North London derby between Tottenham and Arsenal. We'll also be looking into your correspondence via Twitter and the emails. That, of course, is Jules and Andy at footballrambledaily.com. More to come. Hey Jules, how's it going? Hi Andy. Well, Women's Football Weekend was really exciting, so we'll talk more about that in a minute. But what else was happening this weekend was England qualifying for the Euros officially. I know they did it last week, but the last match against Kosovo on Sunday night, they're officially, officially, officially qualified. And officially, they did it officially, in officially. clinical style. So go us, we're through. The Euros is on the way. The countdown begins now. Yeah, and uh, I don't think it's unreasonable to say one of the favourites um, because um, Spain uh, in a mini rebuild. Germany are definitely in a rebuild. I think France are the only team that you look at and you think, yeah, they're definitely a way ahead of where England are or a way ahead of where anyone are. But it's a pretty open field. I mean, Belgium, can we completely trust them even though they look fantastic in qualifying? We don't know. But now, especially with the playoff draw coming at the end of this Friday, and of course, um, there'll be various fans, maybe of Wales, depending on whether they qualify automatically. Um, Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, Scotland, of course, uh, looking forward to that. Um Then the week after, we've got the draw for the tournament. And I think before the draw for the tournament happens, it's very hard for people to visualise it, isn't it? Because normally, like you can already start making tentative plans to go around Portugal with your mates in an unreliable hire car or, (laughs) or, or wherever else. And when we get to 2024 in Germany, 
I think for a lot of people, that'll be a dream tournament. I mean, Germany's close. It's easy to get around um, by train or by car. No speed limit, of course, on the on the autobahn. And, you know, they're all fantastic stadiums in incredible football cities. Now, there are a lot of incredible football cities involved in Euro 2020, but they're all in different countries. It's just going to be a bit odd, I think. And the it reason is. the reason this is happening is it's this, to celebrate the 60th birthday of the competition, supposedly. But they're spreading it across 12 different countries, 12 different cities, 12 different countries. And logistically, as a fan, I know that there will be a lot of fans already now thinking, right, let's get our tickets. Let's try and sort the tournament out and how we're going to plan the trip and how can you when it's across so many different places and you don't really know where you're going to be for the next round and mm. it's it it has a different feel to it doesn't it and and the thing that worries me about how the tournament atmosphere is going to be is when you go to a big tournament and it's in one specific place there's branding everywhere there's football fans everywhere the whole area is kind of captivated yeah. by this tournament and that's the feeling and the atmosphere that you want with it being spread aco- across 12 different cities yes you might get that feeling in that place but then what outside of it and you know what it's like mm. when you go to a tournament you don't necessarily stay right there in and amongst it because a it's really expensive b you might prefer to stay a little bit further out and then travel into near the stadium for the mm. actual matches but the whole feel of it's going to be a bit strange and it was like the women's world cup in the summer when i went over there because it was spread across so many different areas in france unless you were actually in one of the smaller little cities you didn't really know that the Women's World Cup was on. And it was one of the things that I didn't like about it. And I'm a bit concerned that the Euros is going to feel the same. Yeah, you know what? I I also felt that about the Women's World Cup. And I I stayed in Nice the whole time, which was one of the the, the host cities. But on a match day, it felt like it was all on. It felt tournament-y. But it's kind of like they put a white cloth over everything, you know, like a hibernating house when when it wasn't. So yeah, you're you're right. I think you, you didn't have that sense of perpetual tournament fever. So I, I I do wonder how that'll be. I mean, logistically, it does present its problems. There's there's no doubt about that. And I think especially coming hot on the heels of the the Russian World Cup, which obviously uh, the logistics and I think people's fears about what it would be like um, to certainly cut down the numbers of people who who, who are going there from. From, from England and from, from the UK. Obviously, Qatar in 2022, quite apart from the timing of it, not being in the summer, um, that's going to have a few of the similar issues to, to to Russia. And I think there are people probably as listening to this as we're speaking who are looking forward to Germany 2024 already. It, it does feel strange. I mean, obviously, there's also a cost-sharing element to it because as we speak about time and time again when we're talking about around not just major football tournaments but major sporting events um you know there is always some dispute over how much legacy there really is in terms of jobs and infrastructure and all that for for host nations and are they spending money really that they shouldn't be i mean i I personally think like the first euros i went to as as a fan outside england was uh the the 2004 Euros? Yeah, 2004 Euros. I went across for a, a couple of games there. And obviously I know Portugal 
pretty well and Portuguese football pretty well through work. And for a combination of speaking to people there at the time and speaking to people since, both football fans and non-football fans, even with really fervent football fans, there's a sense of, why have we spent all this money on that? You know, we're, we're this was before the recession really hit. They're struggling with funding for education and hospitals and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, well, hang on. So we ended up building stadiums for clubs like uh, Academica, Coimbra, um, Beira Mar. And like some of those clubs had to move out because they couldn't afford the bills. Mm. You know, there, there, there were clubs who were getting like under... 500 fans for top flight games in 30,000 stadiums, which is ridiculous. I mean, so from my perspective and from, I guess, a lot of other people's perspectives, Portugal would have been way better off co-hosting that with Spain because then Sporting, Benfica, um, Porto get their new stadiums. They continue to be well used and they continue to be worthwhile and you don't create these number of white elephants. Now, that is the one thing that you've got to say about this tournament most of these facilities were already there. They're ready-made, aren't they? Yeah, and that they're stadiums that are going to continue paying for themselves. So I think from that perspective, and also I think if you look at a lot of these, a lot of these places, they're places with genuine football culture. And I think that when you go to a tournament, whether it be to part of a tournament or or the whole thing, that matters. That really, really matters to get there and think that you know it's, it's not just a a curio for a month, but this is a place that really feels football, has football in its bones, that has a, a football history. I think that really matters. Of course, you will get that in Germany in, in 2024 as well. But I think especially, you've got to go back and think, they didn't have this idea to spread it across several countries like yesterday. This was something that, that happened like the best part of a d- decade ago. And you've got to think about the, the global and continental circumstance financial circumstances of the time as well i think it's often overlooked what a heavy financial burden at least at least the initial outlay is for a country that's got to host a championship yeah that's true and when we think about london and we think about wembley because of course that's where the semi-finals and the final are going to be held for the euros which is great that's so exciting that backdoor home tournament on our doorstep (laughs) Um, but also there's going to be some of the group games held at wembley as well england are going to be playing their their the three group stage games yeah. at Wembley. Slight slight advantage, isn't it? A little. A little. <laughs> but, but in terms of the tournament feel, I mean, we know what it's like, you know. I'm not originally from London, I'm from Brighton. So when I come when before I lived in London, if I was coming up to London to go to a game at Wembley and I wanted to stay the night in London, I wouldn't stay in Wembley. I would mm. stay somewhere else in London, somewhere that's either you know, a nicer area where there's something else that I want to go to near the theatre or whatever it might be the next day or somewhere that a friend has said, why don't you go and stay there, for example. But Less camping in London than there is just outside <laughs> yeah, Lisbon. I don't think you camp, <laughs> camp for a game at Wembley. But for the, for the tournament, this is the thing that worries me from a fan's perspective is the game's going to be at Wembley and if you've been to Wembley before, unless you're going to a game, you're not going to go to Wembley, mm. the area, really. No. So... I wonder what the rest of London is going to be like. Is there going to be a, a presence of that there's a big major tournament on or is it going I to think be... So. Do you reckon there will be? Yeah. I, do I, something I, in Trafalgar Square I, or something? Yeah, I, I genuinely do. And like, I think if you look back to, say, the, 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 the 2013 Champions League final between Bayern and Dortmund at Wembley, and now, of course, this is partly conditioned by the fact that you have 
two German teams and two German rivals in the final. But, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about this, I'm, I'm sure, before, but you could walk around London and I, I talked about this in the um, a recent Out of the Match episode around the Berlin Derby as well. And we were saying, or Ross Dunbar from Union was saying to me as well, um, Berlin is kind of the same as London in that you could go about your daily business most days and football might not touch you. You know, it's not like going to Newcastle or Marseille or somewhere like that or, where, or Liverpool where, you know, you, you can't really avoid football. I think you can quite easily go about London and even though there are 10 professional clubs, if, if you don't want anything to do with football, you can quite easily avoid it. That's not a problem. That wasn't really the case during the week leading up to that 2013 final. The German fans especially really brought something with them. The clubs got really involved and it felt like the tournament was kind of taking over London, which as a novelty, I thought was a, a fantastic feeling. They had this um, festival at the Olympic Park, which was still being built up a, a, around then. Of course, it was just after the Olympics themselves, but they've developed the area around that for, for people who don't know London um, quite extensively since, but it was still quite, you know, an up and coming neighbourhood. It hadn't been even given its own postcode by, by mm. that point. It ended up... It had Westfield though. Yeah, that's true. It, it ended up having to borrow E20, which used to be like that fictitious shady nightclub in EastEnders. <laughs> but I, I think it, it really did manage to do something for the city. So if one game can do that, mm. I feel pretty firm that like a number of games during a tournament could could definitely do that. And of course, the visitors that have come, as, as well as the English fans, will really add something to that. Yeah, and that's really positive for, for the other cities involved as well and the other countries that perhaps maybe you've never held a major match of of that sort and that yeah. kind of level. Um, so that'll be good to see the the kind of positive effect that the Euros has because I know at the moment, logistically from a broadcasting perspective, speaking to other people that work in the media and, and yeah. how it's going to work, it's quite tricky, isn't it? Because well, no one knows. No uh, one knows how you can logistically plan where you can be and and the, the financial implications that has on, on the media as well and, and being mm. able to travel around and how many crews do you book for 12 different cities? Do you book 12 different crews or, you know, do, do you split one crew with three countries or with four countries? How does that work? And it's well, I guess that's really interesting the, to see. Baku's the interesting one, isn't it? Because it's, it's just that little bit further out of the way. You kind of look at them on the map and they're all dotted away and then way off to the right-hand side is is, is Baku. So that that's, that's a, a, a different one to deal with. But I agree. I think from that perspective, the fans and the media kind of in the same boat until the draws made no one really knows now of, of course we'll kind of be in suspense after the draws been made we'll be sitting there on the, the the first of december still waiting knowing where most of the games are knowing who most of the teams are but there'll still be four we're waiting for because of course the playoffs aren't until the end of march yeah so we'll we'll, we'll have to wait for that be interesting and, and, and you you mentioned baku there which I was I worked on the Europa League final yeah. last season and I'd be lying if I said I was buzzing that it was in Baku. I had no idea what to expect from mm. this from that country and and that area and I went there and I I have to say I loved it. I thought it was I thought it was brilliant. Mm. I th I thought it was great and I, and then the match kind of 
it didn't live up to expectations, did it, the Europa League final particularly, although we did get the Eden Hazard retiring news off the back of that game, didn't we? Yeah. Um, sorry, not retiring, leaving Chelsea. Wow. Um, yeah, God, he hasn't news. retired, Here guys. Sorry, Andy. he hasn't retired. <laughs> Talk, um, talking's better than him, so he's packed it in now. <laughs> yeah, so um, that was... Um, it was a, it was it was a it was an interesting game, but as a place, I thought that Baku was was actually really beautiful, and I wasn't. The food's it, oh, amazing. It was, it was amazing, mm. and um, I was pleasantly surprised by it. So, where I would say that wherever your team in the Euros are playing, if you're a fan and you're planning to to um, to travel around and, and watch your your country play in the Euros, or follow another country if that's if that's your game, then I would say definitely go to even the places that you're not expecting to be nice because they might pleasantly surprise you. I'm off to Munich, I think. I fancy a bit of Munich. You reckon? A bit of Budapest. Can I fit Roman? I, I don't know. <laughs> Get Apple Maps out. I'll do it. <laughs> the one that perhaps isn't nailed down more than any other is who plays alongside Maguire, mm-hmm. assuming he's a certainty. Uh, yeah. Who is the other centre-back? I think the way that, that Gareth Southgate's shaping up, it looks like it's going to be one holding midfield player and two number eights. If that's the case, then Harry Winks, the last couple of games, I think, has put himself in, into pole position ahead of Declan Rice. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So your Sunday was pretty busy as well i saw you there on the on the on the touchline at white heart lane as i will continue to call it even though that's i never know what to incorrect. call it whenever i'm like when tweeting you, when you or say if the, i'm saying it when i you say the tottenham hotspur, I say stadium, tottenham hotspur sounds weird. stadium because it sounds weird, that's the official it? name but it does sound a bit odd really doesn't it yeah when it's the it's dunkin donuts when it's well. the dunkin donuts arena or whatever <laughs> it's eventually going to be called that that'll be that'll be proper won't it um but when we were talking about it beforehand the thing that really struck me Jules is that you said in terms of the atmosphere it felt like a men's match it did it felt no different to me when I arrived 
we get there quite early when when we're working um, on a game. So yeah. we're there maybe four hours before kickoff. So there's obviously not a lot going on at that point. Um, but we're kind of locked away in a room, getting our hair and makeup sorted and, and prepping for, for the match. And then eventually when we walked out pitch side, I was with Karen Carney, Natalie Quirk, who was hosting. I was doing the reporting and then Danielle Carter, who's mm. uh, one of the Arsenal players. And we walked out and we all just went, wow, wow. Like the atmosphere, I mean, this stadium is so impressive anyway, but walking out pitch side on Sunday in the North London derby, to me felt no different to when I've gone and walked out pitch side on a Champions League night when Tottenham played Bayern Munich. Well, that, that's, felt no different. That's the thing that really struck me in the, in the post-matches actually, Jules, when you were speaking to uh, Leah Williamson and was it Kim Little? Yeah. Um, and Leah Williamson, she was... <laughs> another good 80s reference for you she was glowing like the the little ready breck guy she <laughs> she was just totally like you know players always say i'm buzzing she really was you, you could see the energy coming off her as she was talking to you like the, the, the fact that they'd gone there as as arsenal fans and that, that tottenham had made a huge effort around the day mm. they'd They'd sold a record amount of tickets and it was an occasion. It was a real occasion. And the fact that Arsenal had gone there and managed to, you know, go into the Lions then and pinch the points, of course they're the better team. Everyone knows that. But not easy at all. And they were totally vibing off that, weren't they? Yeah, Leah Williamson's a lifelong Arsenal fan. So, yeah. I mean, she just loved every single minute of playing in that match. The North London derby, the first ever one in the WSL. So that was a game that she was going to relish. And as you say, to come away with with all three points from that match, she she was absolutely buzzing. And it's it's really refreshing when you interview players like that who are so excited and so happy to be in that moment um, was a really nice thing to see. But as you say, um, it was another record-breaking attendance in the WSL. It, it's now the second time we've broken a record this season in the women's game domestically here in England. And that's just amazing to see, as you say, over 38,000 fans, 38,000 fans to watch this match. It was quite incredible to see. And um, after the game, I spoke to the Tottenham manager, um, uh, Juan Amaros. They they actually manage as a duo. It's Karen Hills and Juan Amaros who manage Tottenham together. But Juan tends to do a lot of the media. And he's, I have to say, I know you shouldn't pick favourites, but he's probably one of my favourite football managers in the game. He's just the nicest man. And I interviewed him after the match and obviously they'd just lost and he was disappointed, but he was really upbeat at the same time because he said the occasion was so special. And when I said to him, because he asked me, he said, what was the official attendance? So off this was off camera. I said mm. it was 38,282 or whatever it might was. And um, he he said to me, wow. And he paused. And, and then when I actually did the interview on camera and I said to him, Juan, um, it was an incredible occasion today played in front of a new record attendance in the WSL of over 38,000 fans. How special is that for you to hear? And he he said something which really sort of got me. And I thought, you're so right there. He said, two years ago, we had 38 fans coming to watch us. Wow. And he said, two years on, there are 38,000 people in this stadium and I was like, that is an incredible amount of growth when you when you actually just stop for a minute and think about that and think, it's true. 
Tottenham weren't a professional club a couple of years ago. They've had the investment. They're now professional. They've got promoted to the WSL and they're playing their women's match in the North London derby against Arsenal, who are the champions of the league and one of the most successful clubs in the women's game, in front of a crowd of 38,000 people at probably the best stadium in the country and one of the best stadiums in men's football. You you just can't buy moments like that. It was it was amazing. And and to see what it meant to him was um was really nice. Yeah, and you got the impression that those teams and those players really made the most of the moment. It wasn't just Tottenham mm. playing at the the men's stadium. We've talked about it before. In terms of not just profile, but in, in terms of respect, I think playing at the, the the men's arena makes a, a massive difference. I mean, Leila Garrick of Brighton was one of, one, of, one of the ones to make the most of that. Yeah, absolutely yeah. fantastic goal. So the, the, the quality on the pitch was absolutely fantastic as well. Um, on an international weekend, and especially with England playing on the Friday and the Monday, was it a bit of a disappointment to you that they didn't spread the games across the two days? You mean England men, as in England playing on Sunday and Friday? Yeah, fri- yeah, uh, yeah Thursday Sunday. and Sunday. Sorry. Thursday, Sunday, Thursday, yeah. Thursday, I, was, Sunday. I was losing track of my days then. I was thinking, <coughs> did they play last night? Um, <laughs> have I missed a game? No, it's like a bank holiday. I've just lost track of the days. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was, for me, that was probably the one thing I think that we maybe missed a trick on with this weekend mm. um women's football weekend it was a great initiative and a great thing to to think of doing on a on an international break when there isn't as much domestic men's football so to make the most of having the fans available to attend the matches but the trouble is is that all the games were on on the same day they all played on sunday so there were all six matches all played on sunday and I think that's a bit of a shame that they didn't split them and put a couple on the saturday because then mm. for example as we've already said, there were nearly 40,000 fans at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. But there was also Reading who played their match at the Medeski, which is amazing that the girls got to play there. But the attendance was fairly low for that. And that's probably because the majority of fans who live in and around London, which includes Reading, because Reading's not that far outside of London, no. were probably going to attend the Tottenham game because it's an opportunity to go to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Yeah. So... Yeah, that that was slightly disappointing because there were only, I think, about one and a half thousand people that went to the Medeski. Still a big number, don't get me wrong. It's not to be sniffed at, but I think they could have capitalised on that a bit more and perhaps played the Reading match on the Saturday. Um, at the Amex Stadium, there were over 4,000 fans there, which I, which I think is Ooh. a really good turnout for, for um, Brighton. Um, and at Kings Meadows over 4,000 fans and that's not at one of the men's stadiums. At Anfield there were 23,000 fans and that was a Merseyside derby so brilliant to see that many fans out at Anfield as well but yeah I think that they maybe could have got a few more because I think across the weekend there was around 75,000 fans attending women's matches which is a huge number but I feel like there could have been a few more. Those fans and hopefully some more fans um, will be hopefully seeing bigger stars as time goes by as 
bigger players get attracted yeah. uh, to the WSL, p- potentially by some of those crowds as well. One who's definitely coming is uh, Sam Kerr. And w- we've had some uh, emails about her, um, uh, Jules and Andy at footballrambledaily.com, of course. Uh, this one's from Stephen Grosso. Hi, Jules and Andy. Love the new show, and I appreciate you t- taking the time to talk about women's soccer. Chelsea's getting a good one in signing Sam Kerr. As a Chicago Red Stars season ticket holder, it was incredible seeing her consistently being the best player on the pitch, even when playing against the best that the US women's team has to offer. She's able to score from nothing and her goal scoring rate speaks for itself. She's a nice person to boot to. We will miss her, so please <laughs> enjoy her in England. And uh, There's another one kind of linked to that from uh, Justin Visor. Thanks for getting in touch, Justin. It says, hi, Jules and Andy. Uh, with much being said lately around the difference in wages between male and female footballers, the Football Federation Australia, FFA, have struck a deal securing equal pay for uh, Australian men's and women's national team players. Additionally, the Matilda's biggest star, Sam Kerr, has just signed a big money contract with Chelsea, reportedly around 600,000 uh, US, uh, sorry, Australian dollars a season, US dollars, that'd be something, uh, which is getting towards championship level wages, I think. The story's made waves here in Australia, but I wonder what the reaction to this has been in the UK, Europe, if any. And is there any indication that other nations' federations might follow suit with a similar equal pay deal? Uh, Huge news. Absolutely massive. And obviously, because I work for an Australian broadcaster, I I hear about all of this very closely. And I mean, it's first of all, the Sam Kerr deal has been a long time coming. Sam has been desperate to play in Europe from... People that I know that know her quite well have told me over the years that she has been desperate to to come to Europe and play. Was England always her plan? Well, not necessarily, because I think, you know, naturally in the women's game, whenever there's a star player, you assume they're going to go to Lyon because they're the best team in the world. So for Sam to choose Chelsea and to to come to the WSL, I think it's just brilliant. It's a Um, massive coup, especially when they're not in the Champions League at Mm. at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And and that's obviously what Emma Hayes is is hoping for, that the the girls qualify for the Champions League for next year. So from from when is she... From January. All right, okay. Yeah, Yeah, so she won't be playing this weekend coming, um, but I believe from January she's available to play. Right. Um, And I'm so excited because she is one of the best strikers in the world. And and I was talking to Karen Carney about this, who's obviously ex-Chelsea as well. And um, she she was telling me over the weekend that what she really likes about this move is that in the Chelsea squad, the only other real number nine is Beth England. Yeah. And Beth's a brilliant player. But Sam arriving at the club will make Beth even better because she's going to be fighting for her place. And mm. obviously there's now competition for that spot where there hasn't been before and it's just going to make Chelsea a stronger team going forward of course it is Sam Kerr's one of the best strikers in the world and uh, I think it's a great move a really exciting one for the WSL and and something that everyone is talking about so yeah amazing move for her I can't wait yeah it's going to be fantastic isn't it and um it was interesting actually seeing uh, an interview with Lucy Bronzer a, a while back and she was saying that her medium to long-term aim at some point is to come back to England and win a Champions League Love that. with an English team. Yeah. So um, I have to say it still seems a way off to, to, to me at the moment, simply because I think it's hard for anyone to wrest the, the, the title from Leon. You know, it looks very, very difficult. Of course, on a weekend in which there was so much big action in the WSL, it was also the big one in France between Leon and Paris Saint-Germain. Leon won 1-0 
of course. Ofs. Uh, like some, sometimes, if anyone's going to challenge them uh, domestically, it's going to be Paris Saint-Germain. But I think it shows how much, not just money, but planning, care and attention goes a really, really long way. Yeah. Because you would have thought at some point for them, it would be inevitable that Paris Saint-Germain would take over. But they've been trying to do that for five, six years now, mm. a long time. They've tried all sorts of different routes. They've tried bringing in superstars from abroad. They've tried picking up former Leon players to bring some of that winning magic into their team. And none of it has has worked. I mean, it must be intensely mm-hmm. frustrating for PSG, but it shows how far everyone else has got to catch up. And, you know, we talk about the investment that's been made in England, but also you look at what Bayern have done over the last couple of years. You look at what Barcelona have done over the last couple of years. Atletico, who've won the last two titles. I mean, Tony Duggan's ended up going there from Barcelona this season, hasn't, yeah. hasn't she? Even though they've had quite a, a, a turnover of players. So... It's kind of reflective, the Women's Champions League and the Men's Champions League at the moment, in that you can't just put pin everything on winning it because at the end of it, there can only be one. And just because you didn't get there, it doesn't mean the whole season has been a, a total write-off because the competition is just so intense. Yeah, it really is. And and as you say, particularly in, in the Champions League, like Chelsea are such a strong team and they're not in it this year in the Women's Champions League. It's amazing. And and that's just crazy when you think about it like that. So, yeah, I think Sam Kerr will only mean good things for Chelsea moving forward. And you never know, she could be what, what takes them to their next title. Are we having an official correspondence section, Jules? I think we are, officially. We are. Um, so I put out an Instagram post just saying we we're about to record. Any questions, send them in. So thank you uh, to Nath Salt, who... <laughs> I love that I have to read out screen names because you've not put your full name. I'm guessing you're him. a Nathan. Do you know him? Yeah, I know him. Actually? Yeah, yeah I, do, oh, I, I genuinely know genuinely, him. Genuinely, do you? Yeah, hi, um, Nathan. Hi, Nathan. Uh, so, Nathan said, Harry Wilson is an interesting one. Um, excelling for Wales, but is the pathway there for him to go back to Liverpool and get a run? Or has he got to be sold, play regularly, to then go back? Big decisions ahead for him. You know what? If, if you'd have asked me that question even six months ago, I would have said transfer collateral going forward there's no doubt about it but you look at Liverpool and what is the one thing they lack a bit of creativity in the centre of the park I mean it's not completely off the table is it mm. and he's excelled at every level every level up he's gone he's he's looked the part and he's he's become a key player for Wales as well yeah and he's I mean he's been absolutely brilliant for Bournemouth hasn't yeah. he this season and it started off that he wasn't starting every game and then he slowly worked his way more and more into the side and and now for me is a, an integral part to the Bournemouth, Bournemouth squad. Yeah, I think so and I think as well if you compare him to it's, it's quite a, a well-trodden path now isn't it from, from Liverpool to Bournemouth and if you compare him with other players young players with, with great potential like Dominic Solanke, Jordan Ibe, they've not been able to impose themselves in anywhere near the way that Harry Wilson has been able to in such a short time. He's been absolutely central to what Bournemouth have done. And I, I said at the start of the season, for me, they're among the relegation favourites. 
Now, they've, they've made me look a bit daft. They've been mm-hmm. really, really good so far this season. Um, I think their achievements are a, a little bit underrated so far. Um, and he has been essential to that. I mean, he couldn't be doing any more. At the least, he's going to get a move to a, a, a bigger club next summer. There's, there's there's no doubt about that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Thunder Austin, Jeff, hello, uh, has sent this one I know in. Him. Uh, yeah, me too. I'm well, joking. Not, not personally. <laughs> I actually do. Well, only through... Twitter oh, and Instagram. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, someone who I speak to a lot on social media who's always lovely um, and a big fantasy Premier League fan. Uh, hey guys, loving the podcast. Such a refreshing perspective from you both. Uh, and he said, what's the best match you've ever seen live and which match in history do you wish you'd seen live? Good question. Um, I've been thinking about this because I read this about 10 minutes ago when okay. Jeff sent it. So um, the best match I've ever seen live, There's there's two that really stick out. One was Brighton's match that sealed promotion to the Premier League, which was against Wigan at the Amex. I was about six rows from the front. Right. And as soon as the final whistle went, well, actually, probably about about eight, seven, eight minutes before it got to 90 minutes, mm. you could just see all the stewards getting closer to the to the edge, closer to the pitch to prevent everyone running on and doing a pitch invasion. Did you get on the pitch anyway? Of course I did. <laughs> Absolutely. I wasn't missing that opportunity. So you could just see them just sort of like crowding around the edge and just being like, right, we're not going to let anyone get on this pitch. Not being funny. As soon as the final whistle went, there was just a stampede just onto the pitch. And I was like, I kind of looked at my mate and I was like... Yeah, let's go. We just like went running on, and uh, yeah, that was um, that was incredible. And you've, if you're not a Brighton fan, you've probably seen the pictures. If you weren't there and you weren't on the pitch, you've probably seen um, all the images of that. That was an amazing moment. And the other amazing live game I was at was the Liverpool comeback against Barcelona at Anfield. Oh, that's a great choice. Oh my god! I mean, I I actually couldn't get over what I was seeing. It was just insane. That Trent Alexander-Arnold corner is something I will never forget. It was just, that match was mental. Absolutely mental. It's it's funny. It is one of those matches that will just live in the memory for for so long but it, but it all you're right it already feels like a legendary moment in football history despite the fact it was a relatively short time ago yeah. we we were trick or treating in in a road um not me personally obviously yeah, you were. Uh, uh, <laughs> in in a road parallel to us uh, a couple of weeks ago and um i saw this lantern there's one house at the top that always makes a massive effort for halloween and it had a big pumpkin uh sat on their fence outside and, you know, someone like, you know, you carve a f- scary face in it or like a little message in it. And this pumpkin had carved in it, um, corner taken quickly, Origi. Amazing, really. Because, yeah, yeah it's one of those it's moments, one of those, isn't it? It is one of those moments. And actually, um, when I first started working in football, I started collecting programmes from every live game that I went to. And I didn't think that... I'd ever get as many as I did because I was just trying to make the most of it when I first started. So it started off with just loads of Brighton ones because that's where I, where I started out. Yeah. And then eventually it got to a point where I was like, right, I've actually got nowhere to put any of these programmes. So I stopped doing it and I've, I've stopped collecting them now because it just, it, it, to be honest, it got a bit pointless. I was mm. like, I don't even know what I'm going to do with these programmes. Anyway, that match, I still have that programme. And I'm never, really? yeah, I'm never going to leave that because that, that is the best game I've ever worked at. It was just amazing. That's that. That's a good one. What that's about you? One. Well, 
neutral one. Yeah, I, I think I might have to go with Monaco eight, Deportivo La Coruña three. Oh, that was pretty goals. good. That was, that was uh, November two thousand and three, and yeah, it was one of those like, like you were saying about those sort of pinch yourself moments. My friend who I went with, we 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 laughed all the way back to the station because <laughs> we just couldn't get our heads around it. Yeah. It was fantastic. It was that brilliant Didier Deschamps Monaco side who got all the way to the final, and in fact, they would have ended up playing Deportivo in the final had. Jose Mourinho's Porto not just ed- edged them out in the second semi. So that was that was a really, really strange one. Absolutely fantastic. Um, never seen anything like it. And Monaco were an amazing team then. Um, as, as far as Wimbledon goes, I, 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 it would have to be one of two for the pitch invasion aspect. Um, <laughs> You've not been on the pitch, have you, Andy? Have you done a pitch invasion? Yeah, when, when, Wimbledon, when Wimbledon stayed up on the last day of the season against Fleetwood. I can't remember the last time I felt that emotional over a football match, really. Um, just, just, just stayed up under under Neil Ardley. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you kind of almost couldn't avoid going on the pitch because King's Meadow is so small. <laughs> if everyone else is going on, you're going yeah. on with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then, you're, then you're on the pitch Great and you're excuse. like, this is brilliant. And then you're on there and you're like, okay, now what? What, what are we going to do yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, exactly yeah, what it was like yeah, at the Amex. Exactly. But that, that was a joyous occasion. Well, look, keep sending That's a great your, question. It's a good question. Thanks for that, Jeff. Keep sending all your correspondence in to us at Jules Breach, at Andy Brassel. Jules and Andy at Football Ramble Daily is the email address as well. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we'll, we'll fit in one last email, almost inevitably. Uh, there's one that's coming from uh, Cody Elson. Thanks for getting in touch. Uh, Cody, uh, howdy Jules and Andy love the show, was just emailing you to let you know of a recent decision I made, I know you're ready for this Jules, I'm so um, ready, what in, is it? In all sports I watch, I pick a second team to support on the yes. side, not sure why but I've always done it, pack it in It's not going to be Wimbledon is it? Uh, well no it's not <laughs> it wasn't until recently that I realised I didn't have a second football team and it was hard to choose one, in basketball it's easy, pick one Eastern Conference team and one Western Conference, don't pick an Eastern Conference team, in AFL it's easy because I lived in multiple areas. So just pick the teams of where I've lived. Football has really stumped me until I re- realised I should just pick the team with the most active Australian players since I'm Australian. So in conclusion, you've got another listener on board. The Brighton train and Jules can claim some more commission. Keep up the amazing work. I, li- I should be paid commission. I'm getting so many new Brighton fans on board. Love that, Cody. Thank you very much. And thank you, Matt Ryan and Aaron Moy. yeah thanks (laughs) anyway uh, this has been a delight as always thanks for getting in touch we do appreciate it when you get in touch on uh, Twitter and by email it really makes the show this was a Stakhanov production